Good morning and welcome to the second week of the mini-series, I Am, when we ask the question, who do you think you are? This morning, the title of the second message is, I Am Treasured. Now, when adults meet each other, you're always going to hear two questions being asked. The first is, what's your name? Now, we don't ask people what your name is. We just say, hi, my name is Dolan. And then you say, hi, my name is. And don't make it awkward by not saying what your name is. Okay, that's the worst thing you could possibly do. So we establish, first of all, what our names are. The very second thing that we go to, the second question, can anyone guess what that is? That's right. So, what do you do? And why do we ask that question? We're trying to find out who this person is. And the way that our culture's taught us to do this is to find out what they do. You see, our identity is something we achieve. In our day, it's a case of what I do is who I am. So saying that I'm a lawyer puts me above a person who says I'm a teacher, which puts me above a person who says, I am between jobs, or I'm a stay-at-home mom. Now, of course, I don't believe in that system, and I don't believe in that order of things. In fact, I would probably slip or flip that on its head and say that it's the moms, it's the sacrificing moms that deserve the highest rank. The point is this. It's the way our culture trains us to evaluate each other by what we do. Did you know that Christ doesn't value you at all by what you do. In his earthly ministry, you see him giving the same focus and energy and attention to the rich young ruler as he does to the poor prostitute, as he does to the blind beggar. See, all the things that we use to impress each other don't impress him one bit. Our culture says, what I do determines who I am. But Christ says, who I am determines what I do. And I say that again, culture says what I do determines who I am. But Christ says who I am determines what I do. Now, this morning we're going to be taking a look at a portion of Scripture that's found in the letter that Peter wrote. 1 Peter, and it goes from chapter 1, verse 23, and it goes all the way into chapter 2 and verse 12, if you're following along. So, we're going to be reading this, and Peter writes this to the persecuted churches in the Roman Empire. It's maybe 30 or so years after Jesus has died and and resurrected and gone up to be uh, with his father. So today I'm going to speak to uh, something that I laid the foundation on last week. In the first part of this series, and if you didn't hear it, I would encourage you to get it from the website and to take a listen to it. We laid the foundation that I am in Christ. Now today, these verses that I'm going to speak through speak to who we are in Christ and how that impacts the way that we are to live. And I'm going to unpack it in four sections and give you a so what for each one. So now that you know what this means, how does that affect the way that you live? So let's start off with 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, and we'll go into chapter 2, verse 3. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass 
And all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all hatred, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. So, my first point from these verses, and and we're building on the foundation, remember, of, of I am in Christ. Now, the first thing we see from these verses is that in Christ I am born again. Now, I'm very aware that this term, born again, has got some bad press. Have you ever noticed how our culture seems to divide Christians into two camps? You get on this side, the normal Christians. These are the guys that dress up, they go to church on Sunday, and then on Monday, you you can't really tell, you're not really sure. These are the normal Christians. These are the guys that if you gave a survey and you said, are you, uh, what religion or what faith are you, and you put there Muslim, Hindu, atheist, nothing, Christian, well, they say, well, I'm not one of those things, so I'm going to tick the Christian box. Those are your normal Christians. Then you get the other camp of Christians who are your born-again Christians. Some of you here might, be, might have been warned by other people that we are those kind of people, that this church is full of born-again Christians. They're the over-the-top ones. They're the happy clappies. These are the guys that clap and sing and sway, and uh, we install chandeliers on the ceiling so that after the services we can just have a good old time and just swing from those. We're the the born-again, over-the-top, happy clappy Christians. But you know what? There is no difference between normal Christians and born-again Christians because you actually can't be a Christian at all if you're not born again. See, Jesus was so clear in that when he spoke to Nicodemus in John 3.16, and Nicodemus asked him at night, and he said to him, he said to Jesus, or he asked Jesus, what must I do to, to get salvation? How does this happen? And, he, and Jesus very clearly says to him, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus says, how is that even possible? I've already been born. How can I possibly be born again? And Jesus says, no, no, it's not a physical rebirth. This is a spiritual rebirth. But you cannot have salvation unless you are born again. So let's try and understand the term being born again. And these verses that we just read now from from 1 Peter give us some insight into what being being born again actually means. First of all, what is being born again? Well, looking at these verses, it's simply God's life being implanted in us. It says, imperishable seed has been planted in us. So when does being born again actually happen? Well, it's so clear. It says that, verse 25 says that that seed is planted in us when the word was preached to you. So it's happening even right now for some of you. As soon as the gospel message, the good news of what Jesus did for us, penetrates our minds and our hearts, we are reborn. So this new birth happens the moment we receive the gospel with humility and faith. Here's another thing about being born again. This new birth will never be lost. It is imperishable seed that got it started. And nothing that is perishable can take away from what is imperishable. That's good news for some of you this morning. This new birth gives us new capacity for enjoying God and growing in God. Maybe some of you will be 
recently saved enough to remember this. But there was a time when, when you go to church, uh, maybe you're just attending because you always have, or, or you've got some Christian friends and you speak about uh, what they do on the weekend. And it just seems so, ah, oh, like, why do these people do this? Do they really get enjoyment from reading pages from an old book? Do they really get pleasure from coming together and singing and, and, and raising their hands? And, and, and they talk about their small groups and their gatherings as if they're so much fun, as if they're enjoying them so much. But the thing is this, before you're born again, you can't understand what people mean by enjoying God. But the very sign that you're born again is this new hunger and this new appetite for the things of God. This new birth gives us capacity for enjoying God and growing in God. So all of a sudden, once you have been born again, once that seed has been planted in your heart, because you've heard and you've understood and you've accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ and what He's done for you, all of a sudden, all of the those things that you saw and those things that maybe you mocked about people singing and reading their Bible and, and going to Bible study, those things that seem so boring, all of a sudden they make sense. And you understand them. And when you sing those songs, they have meaning. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. All of a sudden, the words take on a new meaning when you are born again. Think about how tiny a newborn baby is. But already all the genetic potential is there for so much growth. But here's the thing about that growth in a physical newborn child. It's growth that comes slowly. Now, I know if you've got older children or you've got grown-up children, you say, oh, it went so quickly. But if you look from day to day, you're not going to notice much difference. It's growth that actually happens slowly. So we need to be patient. It's the same in our spiritual lives. It's growth that happens slowly. Some of you here have become disillusioned because you put up your hand one Friday or one Sunday or you made a decision in your heart and you heard the gospel and you said, that's what I want. I want to start this journey. And, and Sunday came and went and Monday came and, and you seemed like you were just the same. You had kind of the same thoughts. You were doing some of the same stuff. And, and you said, did that thing really work? Did that prayer that I prayed work at all? Here's the thing. To put your mind at ease. It was a seed that was implanted in you. It wasn't a tree that was implanted in you. This thing is small and you need patience to see it grow. You don't only need patience to see it grow though. You see, a physical baby requires continual care and nurturing on our part to see that the child can become all that it was designed to be. We can't just have the baby and then leave it to do its own thing and hope that it's going to grow. That's not going to work. And it's the same in our spiritual lives. That seed that takes plant, that takes root, that, that, that gets into our heart and into our spirit. We can't just leave it and hope for the best. This thing's going to grow. My life's going to change. Everything's going to be completely different uh, because I put up my hand because I made that decision. It's not going to happen. So first of all, remember that it takes patience because it takes time to grow and time to develop. But then the other thing that it takes is continual care and nurturing on our part to see that seed become all that it was meant and designed to become. The Christian walk, the same as life, is, is not a sprint. It's a marathon. So hang in there. Be patient and continue to cultivate the life of God in you. And maybe that's the word for some of you this morning. Be patient and nurture the seed that's in front of you or the seed that's inside of you. So 
Here's the so what for point number one. So what? If I'm born again, what should I do? Well, Peter's answer is really clear. He says, nourish the spiritual life inside you with pure spiritual milk. A newborn baby needs milk daily to grow healthy. Well, guess what? A believer needs daily spiritual milk. And that daily spiritual milk is reading and reflecting on Scripture every day. And even throughout the day. We can't have a baby and then decide, ah, you know, I think I'll feed it every six hours because that's convenient for me. That's kind of between working hours and I can get a good amount of rest in. No, it doesn't work like that. You want to see that baby grow and develop, you need to feed it consistently, constantly, regularly. When that baby needs milk, you need to feed it. And it's the same with Scripture. You can't, you, you, you can't want that seed to grow inside of you without that pure spiritual milk, without reading and reflecting on Scripture. Not kind of, you know, every couple of years or, or every couple of months or, or whenever you remember. No, no, no. It takes constant reading and reflecting on Scripture. Now, there's some hard research that backs up what Peter's actually saying. A recent study was done at Willow Creek, you know, the, the church that, that brings us the Global Leadership Summit, that Bill Hybels uh, pastors, uh, that American, it's, it's a massive, massive church there. And, and they did a survey with about 80,000 Christians, and they were trying to determine the spiritual practices that help Christians to grow the most. They discovered, I'm sure you can guess where this is going, they discovered that the number one factor by far is the daily reading and reflection on Scripture which is saying exactly what Paul was saying. Nourish the spiritual life inside of you with pure spiritual milk. So number one, in Christ I am born again. Number two, I am a living stone. Let's read from 1 Peter 2 and carry on into verses 4 and 5. It says, as you come to him, the living stone, that's talking about Jesus, rejected by human beings, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So number two, in Christ I'm a living stone. That's why we have these people that, that came to the front this morning. People being welcomed into membership. We've got 27 people today uh, across both of our services that have come and they've said, I want to be a living stone. I understand that I'm not just the solo uh, person. I'm not just this island of a Christian. I need to be built into something. Let's see what it says here. What does it mean to be a living stone? It's almost as though God has handpicked us as stones and brings us into community and builds that community. We are part of Christ's temple. Did you know that Christianity was the first religion in the world that said, we don't need a temple, we don't need a priest or sacrifices or rituals. Every other religion of the time said that if you want to meet with a God, if you want to meet with the divine, you have to build a temple with an altar, you have to have priests, you have to have sacrifices, you have to have rituals, etc., etc. Then you get Jesus who flips this completely around. And the Christians come with their counterculture ideas that say, no, no, if you want to meet with God, you meet with His people. If you want to meet with God, you meet with His people. See, our priest is God. Our sacrifice is the cross. We are the temple. Isn't that amazing? You know what that means? It means that in, in those times when your life feels so insignificant, 
If you're a Christian, those feelings are complete lies. You are a stone in Christ's temple. You are a vital part of something so great, so much greater than anything in this world, something eternal. In it, your life has profound significance. Be encouraged today. So what? So what if I'm a living stone? What should I do? This is what you should do. Build meaningful relationships with other Christians. That happens in church. It happens in small groups, which we call connect groups. It happens sometimes in groups at your work or your school or your university. You don't need to be connected to every other Christian. Just those that are around you. And in that way, the stones hold together. Today you get this hyper-individualistic Christianity that says, my relationship with God is just between me and Him. I don't need any extra meetings. I don't need any extra relationships. I don't need this accountability in my life. I believe that God would say to people like that, if you want a God who works in your life without people, without those meetings, without community, go find another God because I don't work like that. If, you're a, if you are born again, there should be a desire inside of you to connect with other believers as often as you are able to. Can I share something personal with you? Since we moved to Crawford at the beginning of last year, uh, Sarah and myself haven't been able to, to uh, lock into or start a connect group of our, our own or even join another connect group. It's just the season and the stage that we're in right now uh, and that because we're required to be at other meetings in the week. We're required to be doing uh, other courses and leading other things. It just hasn't been possible for us to be connected in a, in, in a connect group. And you know what? We feel that. We miss it. We want to be a part of a connect group. We want to be doing life with other Christians. We want to be sharing burdens. We want to be praying for people. We want to be digging deeper into the Word. We want to be building meaningful um, relationships and enjoying people socially. And we miss it. Because as a Christian, as a born-again Christian, there will be a desire inside of you to connect with other believers as often as you are able to. It is inside of us. You are a living stone connected to other living stones. That's the way that we were designed to be. So, in Christ we are born again, number one. Number two, in Christ we are living stones. And number three, in Christ I am a priest. The ancient Jewish temple was broken into sections. And although some sections were open to absolutely everybody, the most important sections were limited to the priests. These most important sections, now this is amazing, were said to be the very house of God in the world. They were His dwelling place. There wasn't two or three, or there weren't two or three or four places like this on the planet. There was one place in the temple where the living God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, where He would come and He would dwell on this planet. You can believe that absolutely everyone wanted access to that space. But in the ancient Jewish mind, the tiny minority of priests were the ones who enjoyed the VIP access to God in a way that the non-priest Jew didn't. They, the priests, were God's inner circle, His inner ring. For everybody else in Israel, which was millions of people over the years, they could just wish that they could be in God's inner circle. But you know what? It was a wish that would never be fulfilled. You see, you couldn't just work your way into becoming a priest. You had to be born into a priestly family. So the bottom line was that you were either born one 
or you weren't. You ever notice how much of your life you felt on the outside trying to get in? Starts when we're small and it's heartbreaking to see. You're the last to be picked on the playground. Oh, isn't that the worst to see your kids uh, in that sort of position? Or maybe you in that position. Maybe you've got brothers and sisters and, and you know, two of them or three of them or more always seem to be so well connected. They seem to get on and, and you always felt out with your own family. That happens. Or at school, there's the cool kids. And you try so hard to get in, and, and it's high school, and, and, and they're the, they the manna. They're the oaks who are the main oaks, okay? And, and you spend like a couple of years of your high school career trying to get in there with the cool kids. And you say, how is it one day? And you kind of get in there. And, and, and sort of towards the end, and maybe grade 10 or 11, you make the cut. And you build relationship and you build friendship. And, and all of a sudden you find yourselves, yourself in with the cool kids. And then you discover something very quickly. Even inside the group of cool kids, there's a group of super cool kids. And you're not part of that group. And so you, you always feel a little bit out. It happens in sport when you try out for a team. And you don't make it. You're outside of the circle. You're outside of where, where you want to be. Or you do make it, but then there's province tryouts, and you don't make those. And then once again, you find yourself out of the circle. Or you do make the province tryouts, and you actually make it to the provincial team, but then they have the national team, and you don't make it for that. And again, you find yourself on the outside looking in. What about getting into that university, or that job, or living in that certain suburb, but you're on the outside? And even if you get in... There are more elite circles, wealthier, better looking, more culture than you have that are inside there. For me, it was squash. For me, I, I, in Joburg, I did all right at squash. I, I mean, yeah, in Joburg. I did all right, and, and things were good, and I was at the top of, of the team that we had. We may have only had one team. I can't remember those sorts of details. But there was, I was the top of that team. And I was doing well, and then we moved. And in my matric year, I moved to Cape Town um, as a boarder. And I found that I just, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't in the first team. In fact, I dropped positions till I was at the bottom of the second team. And now in matric, I, had to, I, I found myself uh, on the outer circle. I was one of the people that were wanting to be on the inside, and I couldn't quite get there. And I had to fight my way to the top of the, of the second team. And then I became the reserve for the first team. And so I found myself before matches just hoping someone would have an accident so that I could actually play in the first team. But of course, no, I, I didn't really want that to happen. But I so wanted to be in the first team, and I could never make it. And I found myself on the outside looking in. Here's the good news. We now have access to God's inner circle. Jesus died and paid the price for you so that you can be in the ultimate inner circle. Peter says that we are priests. Here's some food for thought. And this is an absolutely wonderful concept. You see, in those days, the worshipers, they would come to worship. But they would have to bring a lamb to sacrifice. Now, the priests who would stand at the door and kind of be the gatekeepers for people who were allowed into a certain section, the priests would examine the lamb for blemishes, not the worshiper. If the lamb was spotless, you would get access. You know that it's still like that? 
Jesus is the Lamb of God. Because He is spotless, we get full access to God's inner circle. Isn't that awesome? It has nothing to do with you. You can just come. Because the perfect spotless Lamb gives you access. It's not about you. They want, um, the, the priests weren't screening the worshiper for, have you done this? Have you uh, kept all these rituals? Have you been good? Have you stopped doing those things that you should have stopped doing? No, no. The priest just examined the lamb. And God examines the perfect spotless lamb. And he says, this lamb is perfect. You have access. And just like that, we have access to the most special and most wonderful circle that there is. So what? If that's the case, and I'm a priest and I have access, what should I do? Here's what you should do. Enjoy and appreciate the access you have. The acceptance that you're given. The welcome that awaits you. Make the most of the access you have into God's presence. Every day, every week, every month, you should actually go in and spend time with God. You see, having the VIP pass isn't the same as using the VIP pass. We have access. The Lamb is spotless. We have been granted access into the presence of the Almighty God. But having that knowledge, knowing that we have access, doesn't mean that we take access. See, if I go to a concert and I've got a VIP pass to meet the band afterwards and it hangs around my neck, well, just hanging around my neck and knowing that I have the potential to go in and see the band doesn't mean that it's actually going to happen. I need to go, I need to present the, the, the card, the VIP card, and then the bouncers or whoever it is will let me in. I need to use the access that I've been given. It's the same. You are a priest Make the most of the access you have into God's presence. What a waste of the ultimate VIP pass if I don't. So, let's recap so far. In Christ, I'm born again. In Christ, I'm a living stone. In Christ, I'm a priest. And lastly, in Christ, I'm a part of God's treasured people. Let's read now from... 1 Peter chapter 2, 9 and 10, the following verses from where we, where we left off. But you are a chosen people. Remember, he's writing this to the church, the Christians that are in Rome. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now... You have received mercy. These verses speak of God's intense affection for His people. We are His special, treasured possession. And in Christ, I am a part of His treasured people. So what? So if I'm treasured and loved like this, how should I live? And I'm going to end with these three quick points. How should I live if I'm treasured? Number one, embrace God's grace. Embrace God's grace. So many people today have a picture of God as an old man with a beard and a stick and a scowl on his face. And he's telling you what you need to do and what you should do and what you shouldn't do. And, and that's not our dad. God's the father that waits for the son who's gone astray. He's waiting to love him and to show him grace. Not to say, I told you so and you're a terrible son. We can't earn that kind of love and grace. But God gives it to us. And we need to learn 
how to embrace that grace. The second thing, if I'm treasured and loved like this, how should I live? I need to receive God's affection and affirmation. Exodus 19 says this, the whole earth is God's. Guess what? It's not just the whole earth that's God's. You see, God's got the mountains. He has everything, okay? He's got the mountains. He's got the seas. He's got the stars. He's got the planets. What do you get for someone who has everything? And yet there is something that still makes God himself feel rich. There's something that he treasures. And as mind-blowing as this is, it's us. He delights in you. You and me, with all of our faults and our shortcomings, we are his treasure. Isn't that awesome? The third thing, if I'm treasured and loved like this, how should I live? You live out a new culture. We need to live treasured. But how do we do that? Well, when you realize how treasured you are, you actually begin to live that out. How do we live like that? How do we change our culture to be more givers than takers? How do I live in this new way? Well, the last verse, verse 12, answers that question in 1 Peter 2. It says this, Live such good lives among the pagans. The pagans are the the non-Christians, the unbelievers, the people who don't yet have that relationship with Christ. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. They may glorify God on the day He visits us. You know, the day that He visits us, some people think that's judgment day. Most scholars wouldn't agree with that. They wouldn't say that it's judgment day. They would say that it's, it's a day that, that people have a God encounter. So for Floyd, who gave his testimony earlier, we heard about at the Mighty Men's Conference in 2013, he went there with a certain way of thinking, and he went there um, kind of even against his own will in a way. But God met him. You see, for him, that was a day that God visits him. That was a a day of special encounter for Floyd, and I'm sure for many other men that were there that day. So if you read the verse in that context, it makes more sense. Though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. So do you see what Peter's saying? He says, live this new culture out. Not everyone's going to understand it. Not everyone's going to even like you for it. But it's definitely going to get them thinking. And when that moment comes in their life, when they have a God encounter, everything will suddenly make sense. The way that you lived, the way that you loved, the way that you make decisions, the way that you put God above everything else, all that stuff will suddenly make sense as you live such good lives among the pagans that even though they accuse you of doing wrong, they're going to see your good deeds and glorify you on the day that God visits us. That is living counter-culture. Let's pray.